Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. State Farm agents know that sometimes life throws everything at you at once. Like a fender bender when you're already late. When it comes to auto and home insurance, State Farm agents are there for you. Talk to one of 19,000 State Farm agents via text, over the phone, in person, or using the State Farm app. It's what Jar Jar would want. Find one today at statefarm.com. Today's show is also brought to you by the Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice. In the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. With Halloween right around the corner, I can just say, hey, Google, add Halloween candy to my shopping list. Okay, I added Halloween candy. A little help, hands-free. Just say, hey, Google, to get started. Oh, boy, boy. Binge mode contains adult content, too. You almost got us killed. Are you brainless? And spoiler <laughs> The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. Now get out of here. It's time for binge mode. This is embarrassing. But, uh, my friend might have been banished. My forgotten. The bosses would do terrible things to me. Terrible things to me if me going back there. You hear that? Yeah. That is the sound of a thousand terrible things heading this way. Hello! Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) And welcome to Binge Mode Star Wars. Proudly part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Mallory Rubin. Editor in chief of the ringer.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished accidentally it, granting emergency executive power to Darth Sidious. Accidentally is very kind. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. It's a very kind way of putting it. It's Ringer Senior Creative, your Jedi Master and That's right. Senate Representative, Jason Concepcion. You know, there's like five billion of us, so I'm just doing my best to fight the bureaucracy. Mal? Yeah? Mises proposed that the Senate give immediate emergency podcasts to the Supreme Chancellor. He needs them. We can start with Binge Mode Star Wars, where we're exploring the Skywalker saga films and the anthology films and other facets of a galaxy far, far away from character studies, like this episode— on iconic Star Wars archetypes to discussions of the Mandalorian, chats about the comics, merch, iconography, and more, all leading up to the release of Star Wars Episode Nine. Yes. The Rise of Skywalker on December 20th. Please head to Naboo's core, that beautiful hollow core, with us by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And please rate and review us. We still want five stars for Binge Mode. Yeah, we do. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to share your favorite Boss Nass memes. Walks too upright. That's my note on Boss Nass. Oh, that's they, your note? <laughs> I mean, it's like he just was so upright when he walks. It's weird. Interesting. Anyway, and please head to the rigor.com. 
<laughs> slash shop to check out our brand new binge mode merch. Holds up wonderfully in a battle against the trade feds droid army. Durable. Very durable. Durable. Last time on Binge Mode, we began our Binge Mode Star Wars journey by boarding mm. the Nubian Royal Starship. Which you hate. Lame though it is. <laughs> and breaking down Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And today, we're diving deep. Deep into the planet's core. Deepsa? Deepsa. How would Jar Jar say it? With the core of fish and more. Into our first Binge Mode Star Wars character study. We're going to explore the man, the meme, the multifaceted Jar Jar Binks. That's right, folks. We're doing an entire podcast on Jar Jar. As always, spoiler warning. (laughs) What a flex. Like Jar Jar's tongue, what a flex. We will be going deep on details from Jar Jar's entire arc. Tragic though it is, taking official canon and legends, hashtag not canon, into account. So don't expect a warm welcome, because it's time to head to Gunga City. Jason, what is to become of Jar Jar Binks here? He's a sentence to be podcasted about. <laughs> we watched his story. He owes us what you might call a life debt. Your gods demand that his life should be placed in our binge now. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's search our feelings and use the force. The defining theme of this episode is the life, lessons, and legacy of Jar Jar Binks. The years after the rebel victory at the Battle of Endor, the last remnants of the Imperial forces are on the run, and the galaxy licks its wounds. In Theed, capital city of Naboo, by one of the grand city's many grand fountains, an aging Gungan does tricks for a young orphan, one of the many child refugees who have gathered here in Theed. They call him the Clown. Tough. But his name is Jar Jar Binks. Long ago exiled from his home and his people for... A level of clumsiness that can only be described as disastrous. Jar Jar was once a companion to Jedi's and the Queen of Naboo. He fought at the Battle of Naboo where his bumbling proved devastating to the Federation droid forces. (laughs) Jar Jar's maladroitness on the battlefield was so effective against the enemy that later observers would openly wonder if he was perhaps hiding force powers Mm. behind that veil of clumsiness. Ten years later, as a measure of improved relations between Gungans and their human neighbors on Naboo, Jar Jar was chosen by Queen Amidala herself to be the planet's representative in the Galactic Senate. Jar Jar's sunny, trusting, and optimistic nature served him well during his years of exile. But in the snake pit of galactic politics, it was a devastating weakness. Sheev Palpatine, on his rise to Emperor, bamboozled, manipulated, and misled many experienced figures, including... Mace Windu, and Master Yoda, and many, many more. Jar Jar, by contrast, was easy prey. When the Gungan put forth a motion granting Chancellor Palpatine unchecked emergency war powers, he thought he was doing what was right for the galaxy. In truth, he, like so many others, was simply doing Palpatine's will. Mm. Mm. His good friend Sheev. Very, very (laughs) tough. A native of Naboo. His summer house is there, by the way. Now, after Endor, Jar Jar is seen as an Imperial collaborator, and he is an outcast in his own world, reduced to performing in the streets. 
And yet Jar Jar is still, for better or worse, who he has always been, reviled by adults, but beloved by the children for whom he performs. And his optimism has never wavered. You so wanting to see a trick? He asks an orphan. Okay, sure. That's from Star Wars, the third book in the Star Wars Aftermath trilogy by Chuck Wendick, Empire's End. We get a little interlude on Jar Jar's fate. It's upsetting. It's upsetting. It's He's a literally tragic a tragic tale. Although you got to say, it, Empire's End, good, by the way. He's upbeat about it. Like, he's never sad about it. But Isn't it is, he? it is, it's gets you down because, like, he's described as, like, his whiskers are grown in now, so he's mm-hmm. older. <laughs> and he's just, like, and people think he's a collaborator because, yeah. you know, that little thing of, of <laughs> giving the emperor, like, unchecked war powers. <laughs> it's not what you want. It's not what you want. It's not the legacy that you want to leave. Well— it is a quite a path for Jar Jar yeah. to that point, and there is a lot to break down. I'm tempted to say we should do an entire podcast about Palpatine's summer home, which I assume is is it on a lake? It's is someone un- holding him it's like un- they did by the lake on the lake in Naboo? Uh, it's unclear like how much time he spent there. They said, but that he enjoyed the the air of his home world. Apparently, incredible, and he shared that air as so many others did with one. Jar Jar Binks. Before we get to Jar Jar's fate. Yes. Before we get to the fan backlash that his appearance in Phantom Menace elicited (laughs) and the equally fervent defense that it brought, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the character development, the creator vision, and how in Star Wars, as in culture at large, the past informs the present and, of course, the future. In late September of 2019, this year, 20 years after Phantom Menace, Disney CEO Bob Iger released a memoir. And in it, he revealed that George Lucas felt betrayed. That's tough. By the direction that Disney had taken the Star Wars franchise in after it had acquired Lucasfilm. And he felt this way, Iger revealed, in part because of The Force Awakens, the first film in the new trilogy, because it didn't feel fresh. Here's a quote from a Hollywood Reporter piece on Iger's memoir. Quote, following a private screening, Iger recalls, Lucas, quote, didn't hide his disappointment. There's nothing new, he said. In each of the films in the original trilogy, it was important to him to present new worlds, new stories, new characters, and new technologies. In this one, he said, there weren't enough visuals or technical leaps forward. He wasn't wrong, but he also wasn't appreciating the pressure we were under to give ardent fans mm. a film that felt quintessentially Star Wars. Now, this is fascinating. Yes. For a few reasons. And the question of who owns the story is one that we'll return to later in this pod and regularly during the course of Binge Mode Star Wars. But even though that comment wasn't specifically about Jar Jar Binks, it is an illuminating window through which we can consider the Jar Jar question, the Jar Jar quandary, and specifically Jar Jar's origin. Why did he come to exist in the first place? Mm -hmm. What was George Lucas's hope? What was the intent when he created him? George Lucas is driven by the desire to innovate, uh-huh. to evolve, to bring something new to each Star Wars project that feels at once anchored in a deep history of the world he built and like something that could not have existed in the moment and time in which he created it. Much as his characters use the Force, he uses technology and imagination to sense his way beyond uh-huh. what people feel is possible and enter Jar Jar Binks. Sweet Jar Jar, a creature born from Lucas's intensely creative brain and the CGI technology that was 
then really coming into its maturity, a digital baby of the digital age. Nowadays, we routinely mention Gollum or Caesar or the Navi when celebrating the wonders of motion capture performances. But Jar Jar was the first fully computer-generated character at this scale in a live-action feature film, whether or not you enjoy Jar Jar is independent of acknowledging his role as a pioneer. I was When I was watching The Phantom Menace with the commentary on, I was just really struck by how hard the graphics designers worked to do everything, even the scenes that are really not that flashy. There's the, mm-hmm. there's a scene with Boss Nuss and Jar Jar where they're walking. Humans of Naboo and the Gungans have now banded together. Queen Amidala is about to put forth her plan, and Boss Nuss walks like arm in arm with Jar Jar. Mm-hmm. And one of the CGI people was like, this was the most difficult scene that we had to do. And it's like five seconds of two creatures walking arm in arm because of like the way the light hits them and the folds in their clothing and all this stuff. It's really incredible to consider that. Yeah, this wasn't just hard. It was completely envelope pushing and redefined what was possible. Lucas... Animation supervisor Rob Coleman and three other visual effects supervisors, according to reports from the time, that was the team, the group that conceptualized Jar Jar a couple years before Phantom Menace came out back in 97. And according to a Rolling Stone article from the time of the film's release, which we're going to mention a lot during Mm -hmm. this podcast because it is one of the rare pieces of pro-Jar Jar journalism and criticism out there. It is a, a sacred text in that way. According to that piece, 45 animators, 45 animators worked Damn. on The Phantom Menace. And again, this was this was at the beginning of this. So before yeah. this was something that so many people had devoted careers to, right? 15 members of that team were assigned specifically to working on Jar Jar. That is a colossal investment in bringing this conception to reality and not just for a moment, but for nearly 20 minutes of the film. He's on screen a lot. A lot. Here's an interesting thing to think about. What if Michael Jackson played Jar Jar? Yeah. They almost didn't have to work on CGI Jar Jar because Michael Jackson wanted to play Jar Jar using prosthetics, much like uh, the Thriller video. Luke is again showing his commitment to pushing technology forward in his work and thankfully, really, uh, wanted the character to be all CGI. In Jancy Dunn's Rolling Stone piece on the film and Amen Best's performance as Jar Jar, Lucas talked about how the progress of the digital age had unlocked his ability to finally execute the vision in his mind, subtly dunking on his his uh-huh. previous works. <laughs> it was the first time I could get an alien to turn in a really great performance. When we did the <laughs> dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, that was when I realized that we'd finally developed the ability to do a photorealistic animated character. That is believable. Now, some may quibble with that, (laughs) that Jar Jar is believable, but you can understand Lucas, who, again, must have felt freed from the kind of tyranny of having of prosthetics and lighting and just puppetry and being Mm -hmm. like, now what my imagination could just run wild. How sure were the creators that they'd made something fantastic, magical, iconic? In Rolling Stone, Best said that he asked to keep a part of his mocap costume, but producer Rick McCallum told him, quote, the costume was going to be hanging in the Smithsonian. Probably. An incredible thing that was once said out loud. <laughs> Probably is doing a lot of work, yeah, but really crucial work in that sentence. But again, that is so illuminating yeah, because is. we now— They were like, nailed it. Yeah, we, nailed we it. now cannot— 
divorce ourselves from the reality of the reception to Jar Jar as a character and to Phantom Menace as a film. It is just fully intertwined and ingrained in the Star Wars prequel experience. But there was a moment heading into this, as it was being created, as it was being crafted, as it was about to be revealed to the rest of the world, where everybody who was a part of it really thought, we did something special here. And honestly, it's devastating to think about what it must have felt like for them to realize that that wasn't how people felt about it. Devastating. It's devastating. And, And again, like, Thousands of hours in front of these workstations rendering yes. these digital scenes and Ahmed Best's like really energetic performance all for people to be like, we fucking hate this. It, You know what it made me think of a little bit prepping for this pod? Not apples to apples, but reminded me a little bit of watching the Game of Thrones documentary at the end mm-hmm. of season eight, The Last Watch. Mm-hmm. And you're taking in every second of that and you're looking at the sheer scale and scope of what was required, not only for the totality of the thing, but for every single frame, every second, every costume, every set, every choice. The hours, the energy, the heart and the soul that went into that and for the response to be, including often on our own podcast, boy, that just wasn't good enough. Don't like it. That's a shitty, shitty, soul-crushing feeling. One thing that we should say up top is that a theme of this episode of the podcast will be that these feelings don't have to be mutually exclusive. You can exactly simultaneously right. critique the product, it, assess what went wrong, how and why. And Jar Jar is fatally flawed. Yes. Let's not get that twisted. Yes. And also still respect the creative process and the right. desire to do something special. So you mentioned the Smithsonian. Question I would ask in return, is Goofy in the Smithsonian? Because Lucas has cited Goofy, the cartoon character Goofy, as a non love Goofy, Star- I mean, who doesn't love Goofy? love Goofy? As a non Star Wars influence for Jar Jar's creation, and once you hear that, it's almost impossible to unsee yeah, it. The ears, the eye, the kind of like that kind of length. Yeah, the physicality yeah. of it, all of it. It is fitting in many ways that a child's cartoon character played such a role in birthing the germ of the Jar Jar idea. Lucas has also said that the name Gungan came from his son. Jets, name for tractors and trucks. Much more later on the podcast yeah, about yeah. Gungans. Jason has a, a doozy coming for you all. Going deep on Gungans. Lucas has also noted Jar Jar's ties to other Star Wars characters intended to delight children. Befitting a character who so fully embodies Star Wars's eternal desire to at once connect to the past and innovate and push into the future, Jar Jar also, of course, connects to so much from the prior Star Wars canon. Specifically, Jar Jar is unambiguously a member of the Ewok coaching tree. <laughs> I love that the Ewok coaching tree is but iconic. Saban is iconic. Coaching tree up against the Ewok coaching tree <laughs> any day, folks. Iconic. <laughs> and that brings us to our next topics because the Ewoks, like Jar Jar, although to a different degree, which we're going to talk about later, elicited a fervent response in fans. So let's talk about that. The Mm -hmm. fan and the critic backlash to Jar Jar, and then the ensuing response from George Lucas and others. In a 1999 interview with BBC's Newsnight, George Lucas spoke about how Jar Jar connects to prior Star Wars archetypes who also earned some level of criticism and derision or at least confusion Quote, there is a group of fans for the films that doesn't like comic sidekicks. Who are these people? (laughs) There are dozens of them. Are they? 
They want the films to be tough, like Terminator. Who's who ever said that? I, George created this entire world. He can say anything he wants. He can. I honestly don't think that's true. If a ringer writer put that in a piece, any editor here would drop in a Google Doc comment and say, "This is a straw man." Yeah, this is that is not true. Show me your sources. Show, yeah, show me the data. I don't believe it. Was anybody like, when Han shoots Greedo, I want to see his chest explode and like his intestines fall out? Like, who was, was that anything like? I think the extent of my agreement here is that I would like happily see Mackenzie Davis enter the Hello, Star yeah. Wars universe and Hello. any universe really, but that's it. That's it. <laughs> the films to be tough like Terminator. Incredible. Okay, continuing. They want the films to be tough like Terminator, and they get very upset and opinionated about anything that has anything to do with being childlike. The movies are for children, but they don't want to admit that. In the first film, they absolutely hated R2 and C-3PO. Again. Come on. Again. Who? If If you pulled every living person... And also invented a time machine to pull every living person in the 70s. Get out of gear. And said, name your five favorite things in the world. I'm going to guess that 87% of respondents would list R2-D2 in the top five. George, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And what were they doing? Like sending like... Would they write a letter to, like, like, the, the editor the, or something? How would they express that they didn't, like, see through It's like the Arrested Development strongly worded letter, bitch. Just, like, <laughs> I know throwing that. it into the ocean. She's coming right back. In the second film, they didn't like Yoda. Again. <laughs> <laughs> this is tough. It's, I mean. I, and in the third one, they hated the Ewoks. That's, Maybe that's some tr- people, some people did not yeah. like them. And now Jar Jar is getting accused of the same thing. I mean, listen, <laughs> candidly, real yeah. talk, Jar Jar should be so lucky as to be compared to R2-D2. Yes. Like, come on. And we will talk more <laughs> later about the differences in the response between the Ewoks and the response to Jar Jar and why that those differences exist. But Jar Jar was accused of much more than just being a cute, endearing to a child creature. Well, Jar Jar had his defenders, including Dunn, who in that Rolling Stone article called Best Jar Jar, quote, the world's first breakout digital star. Quite a corner to be on. He unearthed legions of detractors who hurled as many criticisms his way as Jar Jar hurled Booma energy balls against the droid army. Love a Booma ball. Love it. One other thing before we move on. Sure. just want to say one more thing. They hated C-3PO. <laughs> they hated R2-D2. They thought Chewbacca was it. They kept calling him a dog. They hated him. I kept getting notes that were like, can Leia show her tits? (laughs) (laughs) And they don't get it. This is for children. It is incredible to me. I can't wait till we get to Return of the Jedi and get to talk about how in the same movie we went into both extreme directions of let's show Leia's tits and what if teddy bears though. Yeah, know, right? what, if te- what if teddy, what if super hyper violent teddy bears existed, but also like Leia is a sex slave. Incredible. I just want to say, we talk about this a lot with Harry Potter and other stories. Why is being a quote-unquote nominal children's story a bad thing? Our formative years, it's a beautiful thing to tap in to 
the mind and heart of a child and to connect to a young reader or a young viewer. Mm -hmm. And when a story resonates with you at that point in your life and you carry it with you forever, it's one of the most incredible bonds that you can have in your life. That's a good thing. Slightly tough transition now to racism. And yet here we are. (laughs) And yet, is that not Jar Jar in a nutshell? In a nutshell, that is the Jar Jar journey. As we discussed on our Phantom Menace podcast, many fans and many critics... And to be clear, when we say critics, we don't mean people who were critical of the film. We mean right. professional film critics. Actual cultural cri- and film critics, cultural yes. critics, people who can credibly speak on these subjects. Yes. Felt that the character was a racist caricature. And to be clear, not the only one in the film. Yeah. With Jar Jar specifically, some of the points that people raised, the dreadlock-like ears, his speech pattern, his subservient nature to white characters, on and on the list went. Lucas, this response is kind of unthinkable in 2019. It's fascinating to consider in the context of the moment in which it happened. He was offended by this in turn and really did not shy away from sharing how staunchly he disagreed with this criticism. He dismissed the accusations as baseless and went on to criticize the critics in turn. Right. In that 1999 interview with Newsnight that Jason mentioned, Lucas said that the fans were, quote, basing a whole issue of racism on an accent, an accent that they don't understand. Therefore, if they don't understand it, it must be bad. How in the world you could take an orange amphibian and say that he's a Jamaican? It's completely absurd. Believe me, Jar Jar was not drawn from a Jamaican from any stretch of the imagination. Now, Ahmed Best, again, the actor who portrayed Jar Jar, has said that Star Wars is the first movie he can remember watching, that he was a Star Wars fan since he was a kid. Loves Star Wars. Was absolutely delighted to get this role. It changed his life, for better and, as we will get into, for worse. He addressed the controversy as well, saying in that Rolling Stone article, quote, you know what? You've got to check your head and examine your own beliefs. Jar Jar is an... (laughs) Jar Jar is an orange frog. (laughs) Heads need to relax. That shit is crazy. He takes a pause. I just thought I was doing a funny role, he says. I didn't know that the Jedi were a metaphor for the man. But of course, to many people, the Jedi are exactly that. So many characters, so many figures in fantasy stories are. We turn to them to unlock something about our own lives. That is in no way an excuse for the extent of the fan backlash, which was really toxic and vile at times and was in particular too heavily directed at Best. Right, who is a work for hire. He in this has case. since revealed yeah. that this was so traumatizing for him that he he contemplated suicide. Got, that's awful. This that is he was made to feel that way. Absolutely horrifying. Anyway, I think we hopefully can all agree that absolutely no disagreement about a pop culture product should lead anyone to that place. The toxicity of the fan response is a blight, and it's one that we lament. Fans do, however, invest in the stories that they love so fully that they feel interlinked with the creative fabric itself. Symbiotes, just as Qui-Gon says, of the Naboo and the Gungans. Sometimes those sides are opposed by their very nature, and Phantom Menace showed with a real ferocity what that can look like. But the opposition, often though, not always, and again, we don't want to excuse the loathsome cruelty, it stems from feeling a sense of not only investment, but ownership, that you 
are part of what this is and meant to be. You know, the whole discussion about what Jar Jar represents, this is not based on anything real life. This is an orange alien. It reminds me of the famous painting by the French surrealist painter René Magritte, The Treachery of Images, Uh which is, I think everybody's seen it at some point or another. It is a painting of a pipe with the words, Sinapaun pipe Uh underneath. This is not a pipe. Uh It's a painting of a pipe. It's not a pipe. And it's Uh a symbol that represents something else. We get so used to, you know, like everything we communicate in symbols Every day, all the time, in text, in sending each other emojis, in when we watch television, we watch film, that you can sometimes become disconnected from the idea that these symbols all stand in for something else. So the idea that you could kind of deflect this criticism by saying, no, that's an orange amphibian, not right. a stand-in for something else, is frankly not how it works. Right. I mean, so much of not only not only fandom yeah. or the nature of consumption, but just the nature of connection, whether it's to another person or to an idea or to a different culture or to anything in life that you've experienced firsthand or that you're only experiencing from afar, you have to access it in whatever way it's available to you. Mm -hmm. And you perceive meaning through all of your own experiences, not just the creator's intent. And that's, that's true for everything, not just for Star Wars. And that is simultaneously a reality that can't be ignored and needs to be acknowledged and considered, but also kind of a debilitating thing for a creator to have to always factor. Can you control how people are going to perceive the thing you make? No, you can't. Now, Lucas has said many times over the years, many, many times, Mm -hmm. including quite recently, that Jar Jar (laughs) is his favorite Star Wars character. Incredible bit, George. No idea if this is sincere or just like a wild troll. I honestly don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know either. It feels like it has it's, to be a it, troll, but I kind, don't know. It's kind of like his his statement that, like, my sequel films were going to be, like, all about the midichlorians. <laughs> like, <gasps> the whole thing feels, like, of yeah. a piece. Totally. <laughs> um, it's very, like, misunderstood artist, though, to say something yeah. like that. Like, it's not my New York Times bestseller. That's my greatest achievement. It's, like, the unpublished work that no one ever wanted to greenlight. That's yeah. the thing I'm really proudest of. Lucas could not abide the general response to Charger, and specifically not the accusations of racial undertones. He said to Newsnight that actually the real racists— were the people accusing him of racism. Quote, it started out as a way of just selling newspapers. Incredible dated reference. Man, <laughs> like, George, <laughs> if only this movie had come out in the Twitter age. <laughs> Woo! Uh, Man. And then other people have sort of picked it up. But it really reflects more the racism of the people who are making the comments than it does the movie. That is a, that's it's, a choice. That's a choice, and it's a has not aged well, this defense. Imagine Phantom Menace in the TikTok age. Oh, my God. <laughs> Mose is here with us today. What kind of memes do you think Mose would have made? I mean, had Jar Jar just entered would, his life. Would, can you imagine? It would be an absolute firestorm. I mean, it still if, is if, 20 if, years later. It still is. It's, it's honestly jarring. To, I mean, when we watched it, like, you know, like the second line of dialogue in the movie is the Trade Federation Viceroy. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's Tough. right. This movie. <laughs> Um, choices, of course, are the heart of life and all life and arts creations. It's worth noting that the version of Jar Jar we eventually got actually accounted for some early negative feedback. 
Also, Best wasn't supposed to voice the character first, but he mm-hmm. won Lucas over with his energy and his vibrancy. He eventually opted to have Best read Jar Jar's lines. In addition to having him inhabit the body, Best was at that time mostly a live stage actor mm-hmm. who had come Stomp. from Stomp. So he had this in- really incredible physicality. Jar Jar's speech, of course, wound up being a central part of the blowback against the character. And Rolling Stone Dunn noted that Lucas and company were aware that people who saw early versions of the film were struggling to understand Jar Jar. So they redid his dialogue to be more accessible. That's right. We got a better version of Jar Jar. Pretty wild to think about. Yes. George knows that Jar Jar's speech is still a barrier for entry for many fans, but stands by the voice work and the writing. Quote, the first time you hear Jar Jar, it takes about halfway through the movie. Again, is that good? In a movie where the main character doesn't show up 30 minutes in, do you want to then go 20 minutes past that before you understand the other main character? Wait till you get to the next part of the quote, buddy. (laughs) The first time you hear Jar Jar, it takes about halfway through the movie to figure out what he's saying. Once you figure it out, it's easy. If you go back and see it a second time, you can understand him all the way through. Misa want to see it again, George. Man, that's, uh, that's rough. That's really tough. Not everybody, of course, who disliked or objected to Jar Jar thought he was a racist caricature. Plenty of fans and critics just thought he was lame, Mm -hmm. thought he was corny, thought he was unfunny, distracting, thought that he was simply a bad character, unworthy of his screen time and his central role, particularly in a movie this anticipated after a decade-plus hiatus from the Star Wars franchise, from getting a new Star Wars movie in your life, people waited a really long time time. to return to a galaxy far, far away, and Jar Jar just flat-out wasn't what they wanted to find when they hopped back into their speeders at last. Just a brief sampling of some of the reviews, and and brief, because there is an ocean of content out there, should you choose to Google it. In Slate. David Edelstein said, quote, the movie has a way of deflating all but the most delusional of hopes. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) In Variety, Todd McCarthy lamented Jar Jar's, quote, convoluted and lame comic riffs. Terrible! (laughs) In The Hollywood Reporter, Frank Sheck said Jar Jar is, quote, more suitable for Toys R Us than the big screen. And was, quote, particularly egregious and far more irritating than a deering. That's a bombad! <laughs> and in the New York Times, Brent Staples said that, quote, instead of casting aspersions on Binks' critics, Mr. Lucas and his friends need to examine the contents of their own minds. We should go on home! <sighs> It was savage. It really, really was. Again, honestly, fair. Yeah, some positive reviews again, as we talked about in Phantom Menace. Roger Ebert just loved it. (laughs) Roger Ebert, out here standing hard. Delighted by it. As we noted in our Phantom Menace pod, the Phantom Edit. Sean Fantasy, come get your guy. The Phantom Edit is a famous recut or re-edit of the film from a fan, Mike J. Nichols, that, among many other changes that he made, edits down nearly all of Jar Jar's scenes. And guess what? People really like the Phantom Edit. That's notable. That's not a thing we can ignore. And before we go any further, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. 
Binge Mode Star Wars is presented by State Farm. You know those days when it feels like problems just pop up out of nowhere? Jar Jar sure does. The helpful folks at State Farm do also. Like a fender bender when you're already late. Or a thief breaking into your home and making off with your new flat screen TV. Hate when that happens. I know. Luckily, there are more than 19,000 agents who are there for you. Because when it comes to auto and home insurance, ready to help State Farm agents are. Find an agent today at statefarm.com. And now, back to Binge Mode. Fans did not stop at recuts. Jar Jar was so confounding to so many people for so long that legions were left grasping for an explanation, searching just like they searched their feelings for an answer to why he exists, for why he's so prominent. And one fan crafted a theory that spoke to a Star Wars archetype's power to spark the spirit of imagination, but also specifically to the public's need to justify Jar Jar. Let's talk about Darth Jar Jar. In 2015, Reddit user Lumpawaru posted a theory to our Star Wars titled, Jar Jar Binks was a trained force user knowing Sith collaborator and will play a central role in The Force Awakens. Let me just say first, this is a work of genius. (laughs) The theory and the reasoning behind it are really, really fascinating, both for the the work and the logic that went into the theory and the problem Mm -hmm. it was created to solve Jar Jar's lack of agency. Now, the theory just give you the bullet points. Here are the things that seem to support Jar Jar being a Force user secret Sith. His (laughs) seeming stealthiness and ability with the Jedi to kind of sneak up on the droid army. His uncanny athletic ability, which includes, you know, multiple leaps and somersaults, being flung in the midst of a battle onto a tank. The moments in which Jar Jar appears to be using the Jedi mind trick throughout the prequels. And then this George Lucas quote from the Empire Strikes Back DVD commentary. Quote, The classic mythology motif that goes through a lot of stories through history is that the key mystical character is an animal by the side of the road that seems very insignificant, that when the hero comes past, he's kind to. Where most people pass that creature by, they ignore him or they belittle him or cast aspersions on him. The hero is kind to him. By being kind to him, the hero gets the magic that the character on the side of the road has. Now, one of the criticisms behind Jar Jar is that he's a character created explicitly to appeal to children. This is what George Mm -hmm. puts forth uh, quite aggressively as one of the main reasons people hate Jar Jar and why they hated R2 and why they hated C-3PO and apparently every other character that he's ever created. Ewoks, yes, people were annoyed by them, but why are they not similarly reviled? And in my opinion, the answer is it comes down to agency. Mm -hmm. Ewoks fought and they meant to fight When the battle came, you understood the value that they added to the story. Now, let's leave aside the fact that in a truly despicable move, the Ewoks were tricked into thinking that their god had ordered them into this war that they had nothing to do with. I thought that that is truly a war crime that happened. They were manipulated Little levitating C-3PO. Into almost like a genocidal war in which untold number of Ewoks died, plus their environment is like absolutely destroyed from this Death Star that and blew up. most shockingly of all, it's the first and only time the Jedi ever did something <laughs> stretching the ethical bounds. 
yet. That's, what has that ever happened? But that being said, when the battle came, they were fierce. They set log traps, and those log traps took down ATSTs. They dropped boulders on stormtroopers. They knocked stormtroopers off their speeders. They were cuddly and marketable, yes, but the value they added to the war effort was obvious, right? Uh-huh. Jar Jar, on the other hand, as the Darth Jar Jar theory argues, can only really be, quote, fixed if he can be made to be responsible for the things that he does. He destroys droids by accident. Someone throws him a plasma grenade and he bobbles it and it falls into the open hatch of a tank and the tank explodes. He accidentally lets loose the plasma balls and they go flying into the droid forces and that does a lot of damage, but he didn't do it on purpose. He doesn't do any of this stuff on purpose. He rises to a senator because Queen Amidala is like, I know one Gungan and it's you. Mm -hmm. So I guess guess it's going to be you. If the droids he destroyed and the tanks he destroyed were the products of like his actual skill, his athletic prowess, some sort of something that he brought that he meant to do, people would still be annoyed by Jar Jar. Let's not get it twisted. And this is leaving aside the racist caricature angle. But he would have added real value. Like the Jedi take him as a guide, but then he doesn't do any guiding. Right. He's just in there screaming. Because Qui-Gon can cuss him. (laughs) Yeah, then Qui-Gon's like, go to sleep. Use him a head Yelling in my ear. He helps kind of to fix the pod speeder, but then electrocutes his tongue. Like, he doesn't actually do anything where you're like, I understand why you have this guy around. Mm-hmm. There's no, never any reason to have him around. Same with him as a senator. Contrast with the Ewoks' achievements. They provided resources and security for our heroes when they were in the forest alone. They fought in the battle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They did stuff. Jar Jar, on the other hand, Never did anything. And that's why the Darth Jar Jar theory is so fascinating because it posits what if all of this was an act and he really meant to do all this stuff. And really, that again, that's the only way to make Jar Jar a, quote, cool character. So many interesting facets of this. Not only just ability, but intent, as you're saying. You know, the the idea of agency and intent being so central because choice is such a central theme in the entire story. Are you just this pawn of some prophecy, someone else's vision of this idea of destiny, or do you get to carve your own path? But, you know, specifically, I mean, every single thing you just outlined is an excellent example, but specifically with Palpatine and inadvertently through nothing but his good nature and his desire to help and do something right, handing over the power that would allow for the formation of this galactic (laughs) army that made him the Empire. It's like, well, what if that was the long con, right? right? What if this was always the intention? And it's honestly so cool if it were true. So here here are a couple other things that are interesting about this. Best, the actor to play Jar Jar, has kind of hinted that it is. Now, again, amazing. who knows if this is just, you know, trying to engage with a fun theory that has really taken off. Yeah. But he basically said, it feels good when the truth comes out. <laughs> like, at last, people have finally realized what the real intent and what the vision was. And he mentioned specifically a deleted scene between Jar Jar and Palps, Palpy, from Revenge of the Sith, in which Palpatine was apparently supposed to thank Jar Jar for his role. Now, he could do that and Jar Jar could just stand there and say, oh, Misa was trying to whatever, you know, and it could have no bearing on Jar Jar's like 
other secret stealth Sith mission, but it's interesting if that were an actual scene. It kind of does help fuel it. I think there there are two other things that I like to think about with this. One is, would this help explain why George Lucas was so invested in Jar Jar and loved him so much because of the role that he ultimately saw him playing in the story and and why he's hung on to it so much is this, like, maybe great regret, you know, not just that it didn't land with people the way that he wanted it to, but that he wasn't actually able to tell the story with Jar Jar that he wanted to tell. I think the theory's dope. It's really fun. I love the imagination of the fan base. I think, like, the flip side of this to me is that it kind of— and I, I don't want to get too far ahead and start talking about Last Jedi stuff yeah. quite yet, but it feels a little of a piece with some of the narrative around that and the dissatisfaction people felt with the Ray parentage reveal. Sure. And this idea that everything has to connect to yeah. the Skywalkers, to the Jedi, to the Sith, to the yeah. Solos, to this like finite group of individuals or things, because that's fine, right? And like all those things are great. I'd love to learn more about the Sith. One of the things that I prize most about a fantasy story is it's Frodo in the ring, right? It's like Sam helping Frodo at the ring. That idea that anybody, no matter how small, can make a difference. And part of tapping into that is widening the world. And so introducing a character like Jar Jar, introducing the Gungans, when there is no connection to the Sith or even being a Force user— I like that idea and that intent, even if it didn't pan out the way that they wanted it. You know, I think that Frodo and Sam and Lord of the Rings is a great lens to think about Jar Jar because what is the thing with the hobbits? They all had a role to play. That's right. They all had a a fellowship. They all had a specific reason for being there and you understood exactly what it is. Right. Jar Jar doesn't have that. So all you're left with is comic relief for kids. Right. And it's not enough. There has to be a reason for him to be there with those characters. And as you're saying, when he does play a pivotal role or make a pivotal move or decision, it feels like a farce. Yeah, it's accident. a pratfall. Right. It's an accident. It's either something that he didn't, he didn't, not necessarily didn't intend, but where he didn't have the foresight to understand the ramifications of the right. decision he was making, or when someone else was using him as a pawn. Palpatine, right. obviously. But even, as you noted in the Phantom Menace episode— Padme saying, let's form a historic alliance so that you guys can all stand there and die. (laughs) Just get wiped out. (laughs) So that brings us to the idea of legacy. And the legacy of Jar Jar, not only across the Star Wars canon, but in culture at large. After his leading role. And it is a leading role. Truly a leading role. (laughs) In Phantom Menace. Just by, if you go by screen time, he is there. It's a leading role. He recedes into the shadows with his role severely truncated in the ensuing two prequel films. Outside of the plot propulsion scene in Clones in which he, again, helps his good friend Sheev acquire newfound powers and become the emperor. (laughs) It's not what you want. He's largely reduced to a background bit player. And he is in Clone Wars, which we're going to get to a bit later. He is still loathed by many, but he does have a a group of defenders. And no matter what, he really is a true internet celeb enjoying a second life as a meme. I think, what what do you think about this? How much of a role does Darth Jar Jar play in facilitating his second life as a meme? Because it allowed people to loosen up a little bit and say, Jar Jar's something we can have fun with and celebrate. I, I, I think it's huge. It really is. And it's also one of those things where like, you know, candidly, it's really cool. Like, mm-hmm. if that was 
the plot of the prequel movies, I'd be like, that's kind of cool. Kind of dope. Yeah. You're right. He may or may not be a Sith. Jar Jar also remains an archetype of what Star Wars, crucially, should avoid. What it shouldn't be. What it does when it's broken or too focused on fiddling with what can be new instead of just focusing on the story. And this is in really stark contrast to so many of the other archetypes that we would hold up in the franchise. Think of Darth Vader or Han or Leia or the droids or so many others that you can name who are archetypes because they established a template against which the rest of Star Wars would be measured and who, beyond even that, became the archetypes that other pop culture branches and creations, whether they be films or television shows or books, comic books, anything, wanted to emulate. Jar Jar's influence on culture at large is largely as a cautionary tale. He's the mistake that no one inside or outside of Star Wars wants to make again. And in, and in that way, just as impactful in his own weird sure. way That's as why these he's other the character iconic study. characters. <laughs> Consider J.J. Abrams uh, this is entering. Tough. This is one this of is the tough. most savage <laughs> burns. This is really rough. This is rough. This is so mean. <laughs> He said in Vanity Fair yeah. of Force Awakens, I have a thought about putting George Jar Binks's bones in the desert there, on, ja- on the desert of Jakku. I'm serious. Only three people will notice. No, dude. More than three. More than three people will notice. Three billion, yeah. maybe. Only three people will notice, but they'll love it. That is vicious shit. Brutal. And it's <laughs> honestly like, no wonder that George is like, I'm hurt by this. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That feels, that's a tough one to swallow from the people who have inherited your IP and are continuing to make billions of dollars off of it. It, it, And it's very telling. Think back to that earlier point about Lucas and Iger. Yes. Lucas's despair, which we were just talking about. The film was so heavily modeled off and anchored to the past, The Force Awakens we're talking about, that the original creator found it distressingly uninventive. And yet Jar Jar was not only a bridge to the past that Abrams wanted to avoid crossing, but one he wanted to light on fire. Yes. Till it was nothing but bones and then take those bones out to bury the desert the and freaking bury him there. <laughs> While we're on the new trilogy, consider the Porg for a moment. I love a Porg. Wearing my Porg shirt here. Absolutely love a Porg. Couldn't bring myself to buy a Jar Jar shirt. I discovered here that even I have limits when what it comes tastes, to graphic What tastes t-shirts. better? What's the best tasting creature in the Star Wars universe? <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna fucking go, ready for this? Yeah. Mon Calamari. I thought you were going to say Sebulba's ass. Yeah. Oh, disgusting. Stinks, too. Yeah. Mon Calamari. <gasps> I think if you breaded Admiral Akbar I mean, and deep fried him, yeah. I think he'd be fucking delicious. Uh, just a little marinara sauce there? Yeah. I order that from John Vinny's routinely. <laughs> Porg's also good, but I can't even. Think I don't about want it. anyone I eating a porg. I'd rather no one ate Admiral Akbar either, but is I yet? really don't want anyone eating a porg. That yeah. the the chewy fire roasting scene is really at Last Jedi crushes me every time. Stuff. <laughs> porg. Delicious. <laughs> Protect the porgs. This is a creature that in an alternate Star Wars timeline would have just been another spoke on the Ewok Jar Jar wheel, but instead kind of feels like a response to the Jar Jar archetype. It's a creature that you kind of can't help but love. Like, even in the most divisive Star Wars movie, 
it's just this cute little bugger that is clearly there to appeal to kids, clearly there to sell boatloads of toys, but also just feels unapologetic and purely delightful. Something that people can agree on. Yes. And we can't always agree, right? That's not the point. Pop culture should spark debate. It yes. should ask yes. us to look inward. That's what's great about it. Absolutely. One of the questions that Jar Jar raises, one of the debates that he sparks, is really an elemental one. Not only for thinking about Star Wars, but for considering expanded universe storytelling at large, especially now in the peak IP era. Should Harry Potter fans get to tell J.K. Rowling that they don't want to learn Dumbledore's backstory in Fantastic Beast if doing so comes at the expense of compromising original canon's ability to just exist mm-hmm. in preserved fashion in amber for all of time? Should Song of Ice and Fire fans get to tell George R. R. Martin how quickly he needs to move on Winds <laughs> of Winter? George, we still believe. Of course not, right? These stories are in our lives in the first place because their creators were gifted and gracious enough to not only invent them, but then share them with Mm -hmm. us. That's a gift. But the flip side, of course, is that a sense of ownership is a natural byproduct of supreme investment. Fans react this way because we truly care about something. That doesn't always manifest positively, but it stems from that place. These stories are real to us, and so the stakes are real to us, too. That's a precious thing. That's actually worth fighting for and protecting, at least, again, when it is dispensed with respect and decency. Not always a given, lamentably so. Yes. Let me just uh, interject quickly. Great article in the September 16th issue of The New Yorker by Mike Shulman called Superfans a Love Story, kind of about these these mm-hmm. issues of how much power fans have right. in, in the IP era to affect the course of the stories that are being told. George, we'll write Winds of Winter for you if you want. Just throwing it out there. Listen, get at us. Just mentioning it. Other George, George Lucas, wanted Jar Jar to bring joy to children. And in many ways, Jar Jar's ultimate fate in the wider story reflects his metatextual existence, too. He's there with the goal of putting a smile on a child's face, even as the masses judged and misunderstood him. Jason Biggs, Misa, Your Highness. Yes, I need your help. So please gather the Padawan learners and head to the Jedi Temple to teach us everything we need to know about Gungans. Oh, the Gungans. In the Star Wars movies, many of the planets we visit present as basically huge cities. Diverse in the creatures that inhabit them, yes, but culturally and politically unified to us Earthlings, this is an alien concept. Our planet is carved up into nation states, each with their own particular style of governance, each pursuing their own aims. With the introduction of Naboo and the Phantom Menace, audiences discovered a world which, in its divisions, is kind of like ours. Naboo is an ecologically bountiful planet of forests, plains, and seas orbiting a sun also named Naboo (laughs) in the Middle Rim region of the galaxy. Sitting astride some pretty important trade routes, yada, yada, yada. This is why the Trade Federation is so interested in this area. That naming convention is confusing. Naboo, Naboo? Name it something else. Also, the people are the Naboo? The people are the Naboo. Can we shake it up a little? The system is called Naboo. The sun is called Naboo, and it's based on one of their gods from their original planet called Naboo. Can we get at something else? Also, the Gungans had been there for millennia. I'll get into this, but like, can they name it? We're in in loot train territory here. Yeah. The core of the planet is made up of peach pits, so to speak, of energy-rich plasma surrounded by bedrock. This highly volatile material carved 
huge networks of tunnels and caverns into the bedrock of the planet. And over time, Naboo's waters poured into these spaces, creating huge underground oceans from which complex life arose. Among these are the Gungans, a race of sentient amphibians equally at home in the water or on land. Now, the Gungans come in two varieties, the Ankura, who, like Boss Nass, are yeah. heavier, rounder, and more uh, more visually frog-like, I would say, in their in their demeanor. And the Atola, who, like Jar Jar, have more pronounced bills and an a more athletic, kind of lankier build. Gungan skeletons are made of a thick cartilage, giving it both strength and surprising flexibility. This is why Jar Jar manages to survive the battle on the plains of Naboo, basically unscathed, despite, among many other d- misadventures, <laughs> falling crotch-first at... High velocity onto the barrel of a droid tank. Doesn't miss a beat after that. Doesn't miss a beat. Right back in it. The Gungan's bill, particularly the Otola's longer beak-like appendage, is perfect for grazing in shallow water and rooting in the mud. Using their really aggressively disgusting prehensile tongues, they're absolutely revolting which are capable of reaching out and grasping over shocking distances, as we see in The Phantom Menace. Gungans prey on all manner of small water-dwelling creatures, which they devour whole, uncooked, and preferably still moving. If I may interject, yeah. you're mentioning shooting tongues and long appendages. I'm Hello. curious. Yeah. <laughs> Do we know anything about the Gungans' sexual proclivities? We don't, but I, I would imagine if they're anything like frogs, mm-hmm. which mate in huge clusters. Mm. Maybe there's some kind of like wriggling Gungan ball of bodies where in which males kind of like wrestle for the right to deposit a sperm sack on a clutch of eggs. (laughs) Is it like one whole underwater sphere just dedicated to the orgy? Yeah. I would imagine it was something like that. I love it. Anyway, uh, Gungans are a lively, energetic species full of passion for Naboo's natural environment, which they treasure and feel inextricably linked to. Gungan society is generally decentralized. Gungan cities are ruled by clans, and these respective bodies act independently of each other. Should conflicts arise between cities, a ruling council chaired by an overall leader— who acts as the Gungan's chief executive, mediates. In The Phantom Menace, this leader is our friend Boss Nas. Yes. While Gungan government is made up of relatively independent bodies, Gungan culture prizes and aggressively defends conformity, peace, and civic order, all in service to maintaining a balance with their natural environment. This explains why Jar Jar was exiled in draconian fashion for the seemingly petty crime of just being very clumsy. Jar Jar's bumbling, as we see throughout the movie, often has chaotic and random repercussions. The rise of the Sith. Yeah. Clearly, Gungans deemed Jar Jar's antics, as well-meaning as they may have been, a threat to peace and tranquility, and this they could not abide. He started the Star Wars. It's fine. He he really did. But don't let the Gungans' peace-loving nature fool you. Gungans have an ancient and rich martial tradition, and they are fierce warriors when roused. Long before humans arrived on Naboo, the Gungans were warring amongst themselves over resources and territory and access to waterways, etc. Eventually, one warlord, Boss Gallo— Like, related to Joey Gallo of the Texas Rangers? What was Boss Gallo's WRC Plus? Can someone look into that for me? Let's get high fits in here. Eventually, one warlord, Boss Gallo— Tough for Cram there. Yeah. Rosa— <laughs> Sorry, Cram. Let's get Cram in here. Strike that. Eventually, one warlord, Boss Gallo, rose above the rest, 
One by one, he defeated his regional enemies, adding their army strength to his and unifying the Gungans for the first time under what is essentially one banner. From that time on, Gungans have maintained a massive standing army. Though considered technologically backwards by many other races, including their human neighbors, Gungan military technology is, as we saw during the Battle of Naboo, pretty advanced and deceptively uh, so. Gungans from millennia of experience are quite adept at mining the volatile plasma from the planet's core, and this energy-rich substance is the secret behind the destructive power of their weapons. Gungan shield technology, which easily turned away laser barrages from Trade Federation armored assault tanks, is based on the same, quote, hydrostatic bubble technology, which makes their undersea cities like Odagunga possible. That's awesome. Now, Gungan civilization had been established for many thousands of years when humans first arrived in, on Naboo. They came from the war-torn planet Grismalt. Gungans, by that time, had already resisted and outlasted an attempted colonization by a race known only as the Elders. The arrival of the Grismaltians ushered in a period of tension and war as these human colonists pressed into the plains that were the Gungans' traditional hunting grounds. The Gungans, before this time, basically lived on land, but near water. Grismalt sounds like a milkshake at a Memphis game. delicious, honestly. <laughs> Neither side eventually had the stomach for a genocidal conflict, and over time, the Gungans retreated to their underwater redoubts and an uneasy detente took hold. After all, the planet is large, rich in resources, and with the Gungans underwater and the humans on land, it was easy for each side to ignore each other. Loss of the plains and the forest stung and hard feelings lingered, but the Gungans had long since mapped the network of waterways that honeycombed the planet's core, and using these, Gungans were able to traverse from one end of Naboo to the other virtually, as long as one doesn't count the gigantic uh, leviathan creatures that lurk there, unimpeded. And this explains why Qui-Gon, seemingly against all common sense, was like, <laughs> let's take Jar Jar along as a guide because right. the Gungans know their way through the core. Over the years, the humans who were really a minority on this planet compared to the Gungans would come to dominate the planet politically and culturally. Indeed, it was humans who gave the planet and the sun it orbits its name, obviously, Naboo, named after Naboo. We're from Naboo, and we are the Nabooians. <laughs> the Gungans, uninterested in the goings-on in the galaxy, largely stayed out of sight and out of mind. And this was the state of affairs on Naboo when the Phantom Menace begins. It would take the Trade Federation's invasion a threat that put both races at existential risk to bring them together. Fascinating. fascinating. Part of the real shame of Jar Jar being so widely loathed and thus the Gungan storyline fading is that we we never get to learn in the primary movies, of course, yeah. more about these people. You know, that underwater existence, the Gungan Atlantis is it's really fascinating. Cool. It would have been really neat to get to explore that more. It's sad. Mal, yeah. you used to think and you used to people going to podcast? They can, but first, we need to explore some nuggets. So let's roll like BB-8 through eight of our favorite Jar Jar moments, lightning round style. I will go first. Number one, emerging as the inspiration for and the subject of one of the best and most widely debated Star Wars theories to date. Yes. As we discussed earlier, the is Jar Jar a Sith theory took the fandom by storm in truly astounding fashion, generating mainstream coverage well beyond the message boards and Star Wars specific media. Darth Jar Jar went from a Reddit theory to having a dedicated subreddit and a standalone website. Amazing stuff. <laughs> and it's kind of a bummer if the entire world thinks you might secretly be an evil double agent and that's what would make you cool. 
Especially if you never got to enjoy the power such subterfuge would have been designed to secure. But for a character as maligned as Jar Jar, it is an undeniable achievement that people have stopped shitting on him long enough to wonder if he could be a Force-sensitive being so powerful and so smooth that he fooled the majority of the Republic. What a comeback for our guy, Jar Jar Binks. The other thing is the Republic easily fooled. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Quite easily fooled. (gasps) Blind we are. Yeah. Thanks, Yoda. Number two. Becoming a member of the Galactic Senate. No small thing, folks. After Jar Jar was cast out by his fellow Gungans during the Age of the Republic, he managed to not only work his way back into the good graces of his people, but also right into the Galactic Senate, becoming a junior representative on the heels of his role in thwarting the invasion of Naboo. When Senator Amidala had to go into hiding amid relentless assassination attempts later on, Jar Jar stood in for his frequent champion. What rises must fall, of course. And our dude eventually, as we've stated, used his station to hand empire establishing powers to Palpy, you know. <laughs> mistakenly supporting the creation of a grand army of the Republic and then in time became an outcast again amid Whoops. crushing blame and shame. But uh, who hasn't accidentally helped start the Clone Wars? Jar- you know? Jar Jar McConnell over here. It happens. <laughs> Jar Jar aired. <laughs> But he did so because he cared, okay? That's right. He tried to make a difference. He assumed responsibility that seemed unthinkable. Did Jar Jar set key events in Star Wars in motion? He did. He did. But was he in position to do so because Padme considered him loyal and trusting and kind? He was, and that is commendable. Representative Binks! To quote our boss, are we sure Padme was good? (laughs) No! (laughs) I... I'm ready to say that some of the the blame for Padme's many failings uh, lies at Jar Jar infecting her with the plague, which we'll get to shortly. Oh, yeah, Clone Wars, baby. <laughs> I will say this. Like, I don't think giving, like, 16-year-olds unchecked political power on an entire planet is a good system of government. It's true. <laughs> is marrying the nine-year-old you met? That's not good. <laughs> Number three, speaking of inadvertent achievements, here's to Jar Jar's valor on the field of battle. Yes. Did Anakin eventually earn credit for shutting down the Federation's droid army with a well-timed smashing of the OS update button? He did. Yes. But would even more Gungans have perished in the war if not for General Binks's uncanny knack for blundering his way to heroics? Yes. He turns his own foot into a machine gun blaster when he accidentally latches onto a droid after kicking it, blows up an enemy tank after accidentally loosing a cart full of boomers. And he deployed an energy ball as a well-placed hand grenade while doing casual gymnastics to crushing those nads on enemy <laughs> artillery. And of course, his people wouldn't have been on the field of battle displaying the splendor of the Gungan Ar- Grand Army defending their homeland in this fashion if Jar Jar hadn't helped broker a historic. Again, this is a historic, historic. alliance with the, the Naboo, earning his promotion to bombad general in the process. General Binks, everyone. Incredible. A historic- Incredible. A historic alliance between two ancient enemies. Everyone's like, what did Jar Jar do? Oh, only become a general and representative. What what have you done? How about that? What have you done? Number four. Our dude Jar Jar gets up to quite a few hijinks in the Clone Wars. Disturbing. Wonderful to be back with him again. And in one... uh, In a manner of speaking. (laughs) Back with him in so many new ways. In one... Really mesmerizing sequence in the season six episodes, The Disappeared Part One and The Disappeared Part Two. Jar Jar shows us 
that he can turn on the romantic charm. Oh, God. Folks, Jar Jar Fox. <laughs> Quote, I must speak to Representative Binks alone. <laughs> Queen Julia of Bardata says of Pearl oh, Flame. Wow. And when they're alone. Hello. She's like, give me some of that. They smooch. Misa, get the cheeks. <laughs> now, if you're wondering what Julia sees in the Gungan, Yoda, as always, is here to help. He's offering up a thought. Oh God. <laughs> he says in this episode. The innocence of a child this Gungan has, perhaps appealing to the dagger you in his mind is... Cancel Yoda! Call the police! <laughs> Immediately! This is... <gasps> what? You want to step outside, sir? What are you doing, Yoda? What's the innocence of a child? Step away from the younglings! God. Now, Jar Jar and Julia's love survives both this horrifying assessment from Yoda and the plot against Julia's life as Jar Jar and Mace Windu rescue Julia and thwart Mother Talzin, Maul's mommy, and the clan mother of the four sensitive night sisters. Number five. Hashtag not canon time, people. Jar Jar delighted legions with a showing in the now decanonized video game Star Wars, The Force Unleashed, where he appears frozen in carbonite in Ozzy Stern's trophy room. George, again, is like, what? But this is more than just a video game Easter egg. It speaks to a connection, even where this divisive character is concerned between creators, consumers, and the symbiosis in the Star Wars community. The video game nugget and the ensuing Jar Jar and Carmenite action figure that became such a treasure among collectors are nods to a full-size model of Jar Jar in Carbonite that a fan had previously made for Star Wars Celebration. That mold is currently on display in San Francisco at LucasArts and Lucasfilm's Letterman Digital Arts Center. Incredible. Number six. Back to the Clone Wars. Many of Jar Jar's shenanigans in the animated TV show relate to Padme in some way. They're very connected. Including some very unfortunate instances where he drops a crane on her spaceship and, as alluded to earlier, plays a small role in exposing her to the lethal <laughs> blue shadow virus outbreak on Naboo. It happens. <laughs> but he makes up for the myriad moments of mortal peril when, in season four, he saves her life by this is actually a thing that happens. Sealing her broken helmet with his saliva. It's disgusting. During an underwater imprisonment sequence. You heard that correctly. As Padme's helmet is filling with water because there's a crack in it, and Anakin is not able to save her because he is also being tortured, Jar Jar sends a massive wad of what he calls Gungan waterproofing. It's disgusting. <laughs> her away, coating the breach in her glass helmet protection and allowing her to breathe again. Isa, why we so swim so good, he says. Incredible stuff! Man, just the secretions <laughs> of the Gungans is not anything that I want to know about. Number seven, spitting his snack into Sebulba's meal on Tatooine. Yes. Remember this? Sure, oh, he yeah. only had the creature in his mouth in the first place because he stole a hardworking chef's wares, and sure, he only spit it out because he refused to cough up the cash he needed to pay to eat it, but it all netted out in the same place, Sebulba having to fly ass first to confront <laughs> a, a foe who ruined his nosh, which leads to a hilariously charming bit of pre-pod race trash talk from Anakin. Sometimes Jar Jar inadvertently turns the Chancellor into the Emperor, 
Sometimes he inadvertently foils a douche Doug's day. The way that Spulba leaps forward. Awful. Disgusting. The ass first propulsion. Spulba is so gross. Really something. Number eight. Trending on Twitter seemingly randomly 20 years after he entered our lives. This is a fascinating internet moment. On July 8th, 2019, Jar Jar spawned a brief but... Very entertaining internet mystery when he began trending and then kept trending, and it was temporarily unclear why. Turned out, the germ of the resurgence came from a Star Wars meme that generates your Star Wars fate based on two things. One, your birth month, and two, the first letter of your name. So, Jason, yours is trapped in an ice cave by Jar Jar Binks. Mine is your home planet is blown up by an unnamed stormtrooper. Tough. (laughs) Mark Hamill, who, like me, is born in September and has a first name that begins with M, also got your home planet is blown up by an unnamed stormtrooper, and he tweeted about it. This naturally led to many other people tweeting about it, exploring the meme, which led to many other people with J names, like Jason, learning that their Star Wars fate from frozen in carbonite by to you are secretly in love with to all sorts of things in between tied to Jar Jar. Cue a Twitter trend, and the trend that magnified considerably when people saw that Jar Jar was trending and then started tweeting, asking, why is Jar Jar Binks trending? A truly 2019 surge of relevance for a creature who was at once timeless and completely of the internet age. Jason? Yes. Excuse me. (laughs) But it's time to honor today's winner. Tough one to find a winner for. And yet, we must. Every episode of our movie discussion, we're going to honor the character or idea, rally the troops, advance the cause. And today, the winner of our Medal of Bravery is... The Star Wars Internet. Nice. Listen, Darth Jar Jar is an incredible fan theory, amazing headcanon that I honestly wish was true. It's amazing. People say that they hate Jar Jar, but what they love is talking about Jar Jar on the internet. Now, I mean, the memes, the videos, the theories. Jar Jar maybe didn't belong in Star Wars, but he is undeniably at home on the internet, fueling a discussion as eternal as the cosmic force itself. It's beautiful. Thank you, Jar Jar. All right, friends. Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, are telling us it's time to wrap. How wooed. Still, we hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are to hop back into the speeder and continue to explore the galaxy with us, and that you'll join us again next time for our very first Star Wars edition of Ask the Underscore. Until then, remember, Moxie Big Da Binge! You know, there's just fans that uh, they hate everything that I do. They ruin. There's a, some set of Star Wars fans they hate everything. They hated the lightsabers when those first came out. <laughs> they hated them. Like, that's dumb. R two, they see through. Really hated it. They said that uh, Millennium Falcon was a dumb name for. They hated it. It's a dumb name. They didn't like it. They didn't want that to happen. And Darth Vader, this, why does he have to breathe so loud? They hated it. They hated that. They hated everything about it. The Death Star, they didn't like it. They didn't like any part of it. Princess Leia, they hated her. They wanted it to be uh, like, you know, gritty like these uh, DC movies today. 
they wanted to just have a, you know, Carrie Fisher in a low cut dress. So, you know, that's why I did it in, in Return of the Jedi. I had to, I was like, oh, I'll throw him a bone. I'll do it one time. And they hated that too. They hate it. They hate Star Wars. Everybody hates it. 